section nine of six radical thinkers by john mccun this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter three the cobdenite doctrines of trade and non-intervention part one one trade cobden loved to avow himself a practical man he regarded time as wasted which was not given to the concrete good of his fellow-countrymen he had an uncommon impatience of abstractions and more than a suspicion of theories and theorists the one university in which he studied was what he called that great peripatetic political university the league he had sat at the feet of no gamaliel except adam smith and even here despite his enthusiastic claim for political economy as the highest exercise of the human mind his concern was not with the science itself but with some of its applications his reading though voracious enough in hansard and blue books and pamphlets was not otherwise extensive in short he was from the first to last a politician he was however likewise a thinker he might pride himself as he often did upon being a man of facts but it was his greater merit to be a man to whom facts had become significant through all the facts and figures of his speeches there runs the tendency to lift up current controversies into the region of principles and the steady perception that what he took to be the main elements of a nation's life hang together in organic connection with the result that from his speeches and pamphlets concrete practical scornful of abstractions though they be there emerged if not a philosophy of civilization at any rate a coherent reasoned scheme of what he would have not only england but all countries become central and dominant lies the conviction of the magnitude of the industrial and commercial element in modern civilization for when cobden he was born in eighteen o four looked out upon the world in early manhood as commercial traveller he saw that an industrial revolution had passed and was still passing over the face of england it is not necessary to dwell over the familiar details mechanical inventions growth of the factory system rise of great towns around coal-fields and iron-fields swift expansion of seaports with increase of capitalists and labourers and all the adjuncts of these good and evil between the date of waterloo and the date of the reform act the power-looms in manchester had increased from two thousand to eighty thousand and the population of birmingham had grown from ninety thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand this is one of his notes and it may be taken as typical of the kind of facts that fastened upon his mind and fired his imagination in brief the national industries were undergoing that transformation so familiar to us nowadays through which the dominance of agriculture was giving place to the supremacy of manufactures and then cobden did not bound his views by england a wide traveller a keen observer an international man his eyes were constantly upon other countries and especially upon the united states it was not simply that the rise and growth of the american democracy bulked to him as the greatest event of the modern world 
it was also that its possibilities profoundly concerned the future of industrial england in that portentous truth the americas are free teeming as it does with future change there is nothing that more nearly affects our industry than the total revolution which it dictates to the statesmen of great britain in the commercial colonial and foreign policy of our government for in american democracy cobden saw two things which deeply moved him it was a great political experiment democracy upon its trial don't ask me to wish that it may fail he exclaims in the day of america's ordeal but it was also and indeed to cobden mainly the rise of an industrial and commercial rival formidable beyond all precedent to realize what that meant it needed but to look at this picture and that england loaded with national debt densely populated crowded with discontented farmers half-fed laborers mutinous chartist operatives costly paupers ruled by a corn-lying aristocracy impoverished by outlay on great armaments by land and sea how could a country like this hope to contend in the markets of the world with that great coming rival of the west that rival with her vast territory and all but limitless natural resources with her mississippi valley potentially able to feed the entire population of europe with her freedom from debt with her thrice happy isolation from the intrigues of diplomatists and the aggressiveness of armies with her elastic prosperity her light taxes her anglo-saxon labour her public education her genius for mechanical inventions with this before him cobden drew his inferences he saw the coming of that industrial rivalry which has since come and from other quarters besides the west and it was this perception more than any other thing which shaped within him the conviction that the policy of england must be a policy of trade unquestionably he built here upon facts of the first magnitude he spoke the simple truth when he said that a new dispensation had come the whole superstructure of our life had come like another venice on its piles to be underpropped by industry and commerce a vast and ever-growing organism of production had to be itself perpetually reproduced a swiftly increasing industrial population had to be found in work wages food and shelter a rapidly growing class of capitalists and employers had to find investments or succumb armaments of the costliest by land and sea had to be paid for dividends on debt had to be met municipalities financed hospitals charities schools churches supported in a word england was becoming industrialized and commercialized to the core herein as cobden thought lay the fatal failure of so many of the statesmen of his day whig and tory alike they were the slaves of an old tradition they were thinking about everything but the main thing about foreign policy balance of power diplomatic interventions armaments constitutional changes and franchises but the key of the situation as cobden thought lay in none of these things not even in the last it lay in trade trade which had grown and was continuing to grow so vast that it was more and more sweeping into its vortex 
all the other elements of national life. This made Cobden preeminently the apostle of trade, and though there was room in his soul for much besides trade and tariffs, it was in the region of economic facts and forces that as a public man he lived, moved, and had his being. That the policy of England must be a policy of trade, and if of trade, then of free trade. This is the pith of all his teaching. A satirist of genius has called Cobden a bagman, a bagman with his calico millennium, and the jibe has been often repeated. It cannot be repeated too often if it helps to fix the fact that the day is past when statesmanship can afford to be ignorant of the economic facts and forces of the world. But then, as just remarked, it was not a policy of trade merely that could satisfy Cobden. As all the world knows, he went on to argue that a policy of trade must be, and always be, a policy of free trade. There can be little doubt that the series of memorable speeches which Cobden made in the House and in the country upon free trade have, in singular measure, the quality of being convincing. They converted Peel by their unadorned eloquence, as Peel himself testified and they can hardly fail to convince the reader that at the time when they were spoken, 1840 onwards, it had become of paramount importance for British manufacturers that the country should draw from every source available abundant food, cheap raw materials, and cheap instruments of production. We can see this in the light of what has happened since. England, we can see now, was then in a position of immense industrial strength, actual and potential. Her manufacturing system had potentialities which were to beggar even Cobden's anticipations. Her commerce had vast capacities for growth. Her agriculture had still possibilities of expansion. She had access to growing markets whose appetite to consume her goods was to prove for many years insatiable not least she had a clear start of her rivals thus situated she was called to face a parting of the ways and it may serve the purposes of exposition to ask what would probably have happened had she chosen to persist in the path of protection as nearly all other nations have done it would be futile to dogmatize on the unverifiable might have been actual history is so hard to write that we may well leave hypothetical history alone it will suffice to indulge the conjecture that this nation, like other protected nations, would have made substantial industrial and commercial progress. Those who believe that free trade has been salvation need not therefore believe that protection would have been reprobation. It is not necessary thus to traffic in extremes. Doubtless manufactures would have gone on advancing, inventions multiplying, facilities of transport and locomotion increasing. There were such potentialities in these things as we know now that we cannot think otherwise. England, in short, would have probably done at least as well as other protected countries. If so, this growth of manufactures would have entailed results. It would, there is no doubt, have brought with it growth of working population and growth of population, especially if hand-in-hand hand with a rise in the standard of comfort, would have brought increased demand for food. Hardly anything could have prevented it, 
and this would have been an excellent thing especially for the landed interest for if agriculture had continued to be protected and the demand for food gone up the labourer might have been kept on the land the farmer even ceased to grumble and the landlord enjoyed his rents meanwhile the operatives of factory foundry building yard and workshop would of course have had their wages good wages we shall assume seeing that manufactures on our supposition had been prospering but unhappily their wages even if they had been good would have soon begun to lose their charm by being increasingly absorbed in the purchase of food kept dear by a protective tariff and so we may imagine matters would have gone on till sooner or later the very fact of industrial progress without any argument would have opened the eyes of the nation to the full significance of the fact that this country having decisively thrown in its lot with manufactures must be content to import a large and increasing proportion of its food for even if it were granted as has been alleged that it is within the limits of physical possibility that great britain could grow food enough to feed its people this mere physical possibility is not worth considering it could only be realized by pushing the margin of cultivation up the bare hillsides and into the upland moors and long before that process had reached its limits the cost of produce would have become so great that even the well-paid workman when he had purchased his meals would have found that he had little if anything left wherewith to purchase anything else now it was the merit of cobden to see this without waiting for any such object lesson he read the signs of the times he discerned with utmost clearness the industrial revolution that had taken place he knew that the national industries were changing he was convinced that year by year we were becoming more and more a nation of manufactures and he argued that in becoming such we must make up our minds increasingly to import our food but of course he did not stop there without a shadow of hesitation he took the further step to free food it is interesting to note that in taking this his characteristic step he does not seem to have anticipated that food would be much cheapened he says so we do not seek free trade in corn primarily for the purpose of purchasing it at a cheaper money rate of course he saw that free trade in corn would make an end of scarcity prices and agricultural monopoly and it was in this connection that he was wont to declare that the corn law was a rent law and nothing else but it is none the less true that his eyes were set not so much on cheap food as on abundant food and on the industrial expansion and efficiency which abundant food would bring in face of an industrial population increasing like a rising torrent at the rate of one thousand a day he once said it was essential to secure two things one that abundance of food supply without which labour could not be efficient the other a check upon monopoly prices of corn monopoly prices which by dearness of bread would divert ultimately into the pocket of the landed interest an undue proportion of the wages of labour thereby leaving less available for stimulating the demand in other commodities besides food these two things cobden was convinced were best secured and beyond all question they were effectively secured 
by sweeping away the corn laws by the board but he seems to have been equally convinced that all this could be done and yet agricultural prices be so well maintained as to leave farmers their profits and landlords their rents did he not style himself the farmer's friend did he not declare that the repeal of the corn laws would not throw an acre of land out of cultivation did he not even prophesy that there was no interest in the country that would receive so much benefit from the repeal of the corn laws as the farmer tenant industry partly it was that the farmer enjoyed the natural protection equivalent to the cost of transport of the foreign article but partly also the increased demand for produce which cobden believed was certain to come from the expansion of industries all round under the bettering influences of free trade policy there was another prophecy that memorable one in which despite his denunciations of the corn law as a rent law he tried to persuade his particular foes the landowners that they would have as good rents without a corn law as with it so little did he anticipate the extent to which cheapness would go and land fall out of tillage end of section nine